Hello, and welcome back to the Urology Care Podcast, the official podcast of the Urology Care Foundation. Our guest is Dr. Kevin McVary, a urologist who specializes in benign prostatic disease, prostate cancer, and male pelvic health. He is here to talk with us about benign prostatic hyperplasia, also known as BPH. The goal of this podcast is to provide patients, partners, and caregivers information on diagnosing and treating BPH. Dr. McVary, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the Urology Care Podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Can you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. I'm uh, Dr. Kevin McVary. I'm a urologist interested in many things, but particularly benign prostatic disease, prostate cancer, male pelvic health. I'm the director for the Center of Male Health at Loyola University Medical Center in Maywood, Illinois. That's a suburb of Chicago. So can you start by talking about what is benign prostatic hyperplasia or BPH, as we'll be referring to it throughout this conversation? Benign prostatic hyperplasia, BPH. It's a benign growth of the prostate that begins to occur in most men starting sometime around the mid-30s and begins to grow enough that it begins to encroach this prostate portion of the, uh, of the gland, begins to encroach on the channel, the urine channel from the bladder to the outside world. It happens in a particular part of the prostate called the transition zone, and it's not a cancer. It's a benign process, but very common, and I won't say inevitable in all men, but certainly in many men. As this growth occurs, it crimps the outflow channel, and the idea is that this begins to affect the bladder, and and that you know, kind of a back pressure on the bladder. And this begins to affect uh, urination and the men can present with urination symptoms. There's a small percentage of men who can get very pronounced problems with it, but almost no symptoms. But that's, that's a, that is a less than 5% of men who present to us. So most beginning sometime in their mid 40s, men will begin to complain or note changes in the quality of their urination process, some symptoms, and that process tends to worsen measured in years or decades over the rest of that man's life. So when you get like into the 80s and 90s, upwards in the neighborhood of 80 or 90% of men will say, you know, yes, I've had some changes, And the majority of those will have some type of treatment. So it's a benign process, a very common process, not normally thought of lethal in any sense like that, but definitely annoying and definitely impacts the quality of a man's life. It affects the quality of his sleep. It therefore begins to affect the quality of his day. It affects his partner. Um, his partner may be waking up in the middle of the night because he's waking up uh, in the middle of the night. So it has a lot of ramifications, including cost. It is a very expensive disease. We estimate that someplace around 
two to three billion dollars a year for American men. Wow. Thank you for that incredible overview. So what are the most common symptoms that a man would experience with BPH? So we've broken this down historically with good reason into two broad categories, irritative symptoms and obstructive symptoms. The irritative symptoms is frequency. That means urinating more commonly or more frequently than every two hours. So every hour, hour and a half. Urgency. When you get this urge to go, you have to rush to the bathroom. And that may or may not be accompanied by a bout of incontinence where the urgency is so bad, the man would wet his pants. And then getting up at night called nocturia. So those are the three irritative symptoms. The other broad category of symptoms is the obstructive symptoms. And this is the intermittency. That's the when a man initiates his stream, it starts, it stops, it starts, it stops. A second obstructive symptom is a sensation of a post-urination residual, meaning the man finishes, but he pauses and thinks, I didn't really get my bladder empty. It's a knowing feeling. And then another one is hesitancy. The man gets to the washroom feeling he really has to go and he gets there and he waits and he waits and he waits until the bladder can begin to initiate the stream. And then lastly, double urination. They urinate once and then they urinate a second time and then they are here. So they have the complete, you know, this series of urinations to try and get the bladder completely empty. Who is most at risk for BPH and at what age do symptoms start appearing? So as I mentioned just briefly, um, symptoms really begin someplace in the mid 40s. If a man um, comes into the office and he's in his late 40s, mid 40s, uh, getting onto the 50s, and he has those cardinal symptoms of BPH that I just mentioned, Uh, We would attribute that, unless there's other evidence, we would attribute that to the beginnings of BPH. If he's younger than 45, we would say, well, you know, that's pretty early to start having that. And that would take us down a different pathway. So anyway, mid 40s is kind of the answer to your question. So who's at risk for it? Well, you got to be male. The older you are, the more likely you're going to have this. But we also have other risk factors that seem to associate very strongly. But I wanna be careful to say not, not as a cause, it's an association. So I'm not saying that this causes what, because it's more common in obese men, more common in men who are not regular exercisers. So sedentary lifestyle. Men with erectile dysfunction, amazingly, are more likely to have BPH. It turns out that African-Americans are more likely to have this and also less likely to get treatment for a bunch of different factors, including access to care. And then uh, a family history. So dad had a procedure, brothers have a procedure. Those, there tends to be a very strong correlation. There's famous studies where they looked at twins, twin boys, and the relationship between one having BPH, one getting procedure for BPH and the twin is very strong. So there's certainly a genetic component to this as well. And how is BPH commonly diagnosed? 
Well, most commonly and most importantly, it's an assessment of the symptoms because it's really a symptom cluster. So men would come into the office complaining of lower urinary tract symptoms, which we would call LUTs, lower urinary tract symptoms. And we would listen to that history. We would query him about those seven cardinal symptoms and onset, family history, et cetera, and a physical examination. And that means a digital rectal examination to assess assess prostate. And also, in my own view and in the AUA guidelines, uh, looking at the man's urine, uh, a urinalysis. Why? Well, we want to see that there isn't an infection, that there isn't blood or some evidence of perhaps a bladder problem, a bladder cancer, of some other medical problem affecting urination. Very common one we see are men who don't even know they have diabetes. They have lots of glucose in their urine, and that necessitates that they have urination com- you know, symptoms and complaints. We discover a lot of diabetics this way. And there are many other tests you can do from that point on. But that's really kind of the basics, the things that really should be done. Symptom assessment, we do that with an AUA symptom index or a IPSS, an international prostate symptom score, they are the same things. And a symptom score, a physical examination, a urinalysis, examination of the urine, and you know, trying to understand the man's overall health picture. What treatments are available for BPH? So they, uh, the treatments fall into three or four categories. Let me present that. Once you've made the diagnosis and it's clear that there is not an impending health problem with the individual, like the BPH has gotten so severe, his kidneys are starting to fail. You know, that would be a perfect example of a guy with a serious sequelae of BPH. So as long as he doesn't have one of those, and if his symptoms are tolerable to him, then it's safe to simply watch him, you know, reassess him later. Uh, the idea is a active surveillance where you would reassess periodically to see, hey, are things getting worse? And, and the perfect example is the guy comes in, he's getting up once or twice at night. Um, he does have some of those symptoms I mentioned before, but he's really just looking for reassurance. Hey, doc, just tell me I don't have cancer. Um, you know, that kind of thing. No, sir, you're, you've got lots of company. Uh, this is attributed to your age and maybe some other things it's safe for you not to have therapy. Um, Another, uh, just take that same guy and he comes in, he goes, you know, doctor, I have these things, but I'm annoyed by it, but I don't like medicines. I don't like surgeries. So we would do behavior changes, take an assessment of, well, what are you drinking in the evening in particular? Are you retaining fluid that you are during the day and then your body wants you to excrete this at night when you're recumbent, when you're laying down, um, do, are, do you have symptoms, mild symptoms of like pre-diabetic, which might spill glucose into urine that can give rise to your symptoms. So we can change dietary habits, sleep habits, fluid intake habits. And by fluids, I mean volume and amount and type. So, you know, the guy's having a six pack of beer before bed. Yeah, you're, you are definitely getting up, sir. And uh, you are not going to stop that until, until you control that l- late evening drinking. 
um, or the guy that drinks coffee in the evening. You know, we try to change some of those um, dietary intakes and it can really have a benefit in terms of improving symptoms, particularly for those who are annoyed and prevent them from going on to something a little bit more involved. Well, what are the other involved? Well, they fall into medicines and surgeries, or let's call them medicines and interventions. So medicines, um, three broad categories, three or four broad categories of treatment nowadays. Our classic is the use of alpha blockers. This was a type of medication used for high blood pressure where it was noted that if men took this medication, their urination symptoms seemed to improve. The thought was that the, the alpha blockers, the pills, allowed the prostate to relax and so the men would urinate more efficiently. So I, I won't really go into all the different drugs. There's about four or five different ones in that category. And they're the mainstay of therapy. If a man starts a medical therapy, that's usually the category that, that is used first. A second type of drug is called a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. And this is essentially a hormone pill that blocks the production of dihydrotestosterone, a normal hormone in men, which is key in terms of causing the prostate to grow over time. If you take this medication, the dihydrotestosterone levels plummet and the prostate begins a slow process of regression. Um, it starts to shrink and symptoms slowly improve. And there is a reduced risk of surgery or the bad sequelae of BPH. Um, but the important thing about that medication, it's not an instantaneous impact. You really have to be patient to allow the drug to have its effect. Is it turns out that men, if they take a phosphodiesterase type five inhibitor, that's a class of drug used for sexual dysfunction, um, that the, many of those drugs can have an effect, an improvement in lower urinary tract symptoms in the symptoms of BPH. So one such drug is approved in the US for that and approved in Europe and other places in the world, but it's probably, or actually is, a class effect. The PD-5 inhibitors are called. They have an, an impact on the bladder and prostate and the way men sense their symptoms and they can have an improvement. And then our last class is uh, men with BPH who really more, have more of the irritative symptoms, in which case we could use a class of drugs called a beta-3 agonist. And it's a smaller, newer class of drug that affects the, the sensations of the bladder so that the men have an improved bladder capacity and less frequency and urgency. It doesn't do anything about the natural history likely, but it can alleviate symptoms. So that's drugs. And I'd say the summary is there are a lot of choices and the choices have to be tailored to the overall health of the patient and what he can tolerate. And of course, every drug has side effects and that also has to be put into the process in terms of a, of a choice. Lastly, interventions. In the old days, the interventions were primarily a transurethral surgery called a TERP, transurethral resection of the prostate. And that was the mainstay of prostate surgery in this century, or at least the, the latter two thirds of 20th century. In the last several years, there's been an explosion of different types of 
minimally invasive surgical treatments, which make the surgical approach to the prostate disease much more palatable to the patients, much more tolerable, a faster recovery, and less of an impact on important aspects of their health, such as sexual function, ejaculatory function, and time to recovery. Um, and then there are traditional surgeries for prostates, which are particularly big. Those would be robotic procedures uh, of various kinds, and even open procedures where we make incisions, old time surgery type procedures, where we make incisions and go in and pluck out that transition zone of the prostate. So in summary, we have the transurethral approaches, which are still valid and very useful. Some of those have alterations where we use lasers rather than electricity, but the idea is it's a transurethral procedure done under general anesthesia or spinal anesthesia or some kind of significant anesthesia. We have these traditional open approaches or even robotic approaches for prostates, which are particularly big. And then kind of the big growing category is the minimally invasive treatments. The idea is um, doing something limited, something um, which is good enough to improve symptoms, but not necessarily as robust as those traditional surgeries with the key being preserving sexual health and a fast recovery. Great, that was a fantastic overview of those treatment options. So what advice do you have for patients, partners, and caregivers regarding diagnosis and treatment of BPH? Well, if a man has the symptoms, I think it is worthwhile for them to be evaluated. That can be done by urologists because we're experts in this, but I would say most patients probably end up mentioning it to their primary care physician or healthcare provider, the primary doctors first, and then you know, get towards a urologist later. So I would not ignore it. Why? Well, you want to be sure that there is, or you'd like to know if there's a reversible cause for the symptoms to be sure that there isn't, you're, you're saying it's related to BPH or it's related to the fact that your patient is an older male, but you really don't know that. You want to do that initial evaluation to see that there's nothing else happening, which might mimic it. And then to know that this can be progressive. It can get worse over time and that can be prevented. So that is also another reason to take these symptoms seriously or at least to have it evaluated. Sometimes these, as I mentioned previously, the symptoms can be so bad that the men's life, the quality of their life is very much, I won't say destroyed, but negatively affected. And this effect can also roll into the partner as I mentioned about sleep disorders and stuff and, and partners. So again, other reasons to, to get in there and get it evaluated. And then most importantly, uh, when we look at the quality of a person's life, you can, you can prevent the associated withdrawal from society that many of these men exhibit. They don't wanna go out to restaurants and social events because they're concerned or they go about their day going from this bathroom at the grocery store to this bathroom at the hardware store. You know, they start living their life around bathrooms. That, that leads to social withdrawal. It leads to depression. These symptoms, although not lethal, can be um, very much a negative impact on the quality of their life, the quality of their family life, the quality of their partner's life, and can be avoided, improved, or reversed. <laughs> 
Do you have any final thoughts on the topic of BPH? Final thoughts, I'd say kind of summary is, it is a common disorder. It is a progressive disorder. It is an impactful disorder, lots of social ramifications. It is an expensive problem to treat. It is particularly expensive to treat if it is progressed. So it is likely very worthwhile that the men, when they have these symptoms, that they pursue it. Dr. McVeary, thank you so much again for joining us on today's episode of the Urology Care Podcast. This podcast was made possible through the support of Olympus. This podcast has been brought to you by the Urology Care Foundation, powered by trusted experts of the American Urological Association. For more information on today's topic and for all things urology health, visit urologyhealth.org. That's urologyhealth.org.